Well, uh, happy Independence Day. Uh, as an Englishman, it's a bit of a funny day for me living here. Uh, so I guess well done for beating back my ancestors and establishing a free nation. Um, this is really, it seems like a special day. Um, as I look, look around this room, pretty much half of everybody in this room is not someone I see regularly. Either it's somebody brand new or an old friend who's come back after a long time. So uh, this feels like a special day to me. Uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, we're actually not going to talk about independence today. Uh, we're going to talk about interdependence. Uh, why it is that we all need each other and what it is that we owe to one another. Uh, and this word interdependence is one of our nine core values here at Incarnation. And it's the subject that Paul wants to talk about in the second half of Romans chapter 13. So uh, let's go ahead and find that now. Page 948 of the Church Bibles. Uh, we've been going through a series in the book of Romans. Last week we had a bunch of visitors come and I talked about submitting to the governing authorities. And I told you, uh, this wouldn't be the passage I would pick to, to teach a bunch of new people. But this week, we're, it's all about love. And this is exactly the passage I would pick uh, to teach a bunch of visitors and new people. So uh, Romans 13, and we're going to start at verse 7. Let me kick us off with a personal story. So a few years ago, I was over in England on vacation. And I was in one of my favorite towns, which is Cambridge. And one of my good friends from college came up to Cambridge to see me and Sarah and the children while we were there. And we had this wonderful day in the wonderful city with him. And one of the things we did while we were there is we went punting on the River Cam. Uh, punting is a long-standing Cambridge tradition. You, you climb into a long, thin wooden boat on the river, and one person stands up in the back of the boat with a long pole and pushes the boat forward. It's the same idea as the gondolas in Venice, if you've ever seen those. Um, so we made this great big plan that we were going to go punting on the river. It was all my idea, and my whole English family was with us. So we needed to rent out two punts, and we were going to be out for a couple of hours. So I stood there in the booking office, and they told me that the cost for the rental was going to be over £100. Uh, and I was really caught embarrassed, because that was much more money than I remembered it costing, and it was much more than I had with me. So I stood there and I was like ashamed because I didn't have enough English money to pay for the rental. So I had made all of these big plans and all these promises and I wasn't able to follow through. That was just a horrible feeling. My friend was standing next to me in the booking office and he took out his wallet and he covered the cost, the whole thing, which really saved me from embarrassment and it saved my children from disappointment. So we ended up having a great time out on the river and I expressed to my friend how grateful I was that he had come to my rescue. And he said he was glad to do it. And we parted at the end of that day. And we didn't see him again on that visit. But I came home to the US. And I just couldn't forget about that 100 pounds. In the weeks and months that followed, I found myself thinking about it from time to time. And every time I thought about that friend, I would remember the punting incident and the 100 pounds. It hung over me like a shadow. And I knew that my friend loved me, and I believed he was happy to make me a gift like that. And in other circumstances, I would have accepted a gift like that from him. But this one just felt wrong. It wasn't really a free gift. I had kind of left him with no choice. So two whole years later, when we were back in England again and visiting with that same friend again, I still remembered it. And I took him aside, and I paid him back. And he had completely forgotten all about it. Um, but I think he recognized that it was important to me 
that I pay him back. So he let me, and we're still good friends. So I wanted to share that story with you to illustrate what it feels like to be in debt, to have a sense of obligation. It's a feeling that can nag at us. It can keep us in uncomfortable remembrance, and maybe it can overshadow a relationship. And when we feel that we're in debt or under obligation, we're eager to get out of that as soon as we can, aren't we? That feeling is just a powerful motivator. So here, as Paul writes in Romans 13, I think it's his desire to motivate the church, to shake it out of sleep and to spur it into action. And Paul's means for doing that here in this chapter is this idea of obligation, what we owe to one another. So today, first I want to notice how much the idea of being in debt motivated Paul. Second, that Paul saw love as the unpayable debt. And third, that the time for paying back is short. So the first thing we see in Romans 13 is that Paul himself was motivated by this idea of being in debt. Romans 13 verse 7 says, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honour to whom honour is owed. So the idea of owing things to people like respect and honour might seem strange to us, but it's clearly important to Paul. So notice that there are different reasons that we might owe something to somebody either because we borrowed it from them and ought to pay it back, or that we benefited from somebody else's work and should share in that benefit, or that a person's service on our behalf makes them worthy of our honour. And all of those different ways of owing people are listed in verse 7. So when it comes to taxes, the reason we owe them is that we are the beneficiaries of the things that taxes pay for, like the military, which keeps our country secure, and the police and justice system that keep it orderly, and the emergency services that rush to our aid. And taxes subsidize things like roads and utilities, schools and colleges, hospitals and banks that we all use every day. And we've got to say that we would not be the safe, healthy, educated people we are without all these things, and we could not continue to prosper and do business and make money without them. So although we didn't choose to spend our money in these ways, it was nonetheless spent on our behalf, for our benefit, and therefore we are indebted. So we pay taxes to whom taxes are owed. And actually, we remember that in this country, it was unfair taxes that were the main reason you wanted independence in the first place. Um, so as we look at the system now, it's very reasonable and a very good deal for most people. Only the super wealthy make any significant contribution to the costs of running this country, while the rest of us pay much less than our share and get much more than we paid for. So we can pay our taxes with gratitude. Next, Paul mentions revenues. Revenues means the income that we made out of other people's money or resources. So the idea is that if I farm someone else's land, and the, the owner then deserves a share of the income that I gain, and that's usually paid in rent. I think the idea of sharing revenues is self-evident to our capitalistic mindset. And the final one Paul mentions in verse 7 is respect and honour. And these are things that we might owe to people who are serving our interests by the work they do. People like parents, teachers, judges, and senators. Their hard work for our good, or the public good, deserves honor. Now, as you think about all these things, I hope you start to get the sense here of just how interdependent we are as a human family. No one on earth can truly be called independent. 
Our lives depend on each other, and we have much that we owe to one another, even now in the tech age. I don't know if you saw the old movie about two decades ago called About a Boy uh, that has the main character played by Hugh Grant, and he wants to disprove the cliché that no man is an island. <laughs> the Hugh Grant's character in this movie, he desperately wants to be an island. He wants to be a solo man, detached and independent from everyone else. And in the movie, he completely fails because of his growing affection and care for a neighborhood boy. But even before that, even before he failed through love, he still wasn't an island at all. Uh, he lived a selfish, reclusive lifestyle that was only possible through the country that made his property safe and secure, the people who grew and packaged his food, the utility companies that produced his power, the manufacturers who made his TV and his clothing and all his other things that he used, and the music fans who provided all of his income, and so on and so on and so on. Hundreds and hundreds of people made his life possible. And so it is with us. It is ludicrous to pretend that we owe nothing to anyone. One of my friends uh, goes to a college and the president has this phrase that he uses over and over, we all sit in the shade of trees we did not plant. So it is true that there is no such thing as a self-made man. We all depend on one another. And Paul was keenly aware of the people who depended on him. So there are two other places in Romans where Paul talks about his debts. It's going to be helpful for us to see those again. So, in your Bibles, turn back to chapter 1 of Romans, page 937, Romans chapter 1. And in Romans 1, verse 14, Paul says, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. That's Romans 1, verse 14. I am under obligation. And that's exactly the same idea as we find in chapter 13. It's the same Greek word. Paul says, I have a debt to pay. He owes something to someone. He, and he feels the way I felt when I owed my friend 100 pounds. But in this case, what Paul owes is the gospel. And who he owes it to is strangers, both Greeks and barbarians whom he has never met. Okay, I have an obligation, he says. Let's see the other one. Let's flip ahead to Romans uh, chapter 8, uh, verse 12. And that's on page 944. Romans 8, verse 12. In Romans 8, verse 12, Paul's been talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit and the brand new life in the Spirit. He says in verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors. Same word again. Not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but to the Spirit. So here in Romans 8, Paul has that same feeling all over again when he thinks about the Holy Spirit, when he thinks about the enormous gift that has been given to him. He realizes, I am a debtor. I have an obligation. The sheer vastness of this gift demands a response. It wasn't that the gift of the Holy Spirit wasn't free. It wasn't that Jesus didn't die on the cross as a free gift of love and a love that expects nothing in return. But I Having received a gift so magnificent, how could I not be changed? How could I not feel myself so deeply indebted to this life-changing gift so as to devote the whole rest of my life to trying to pay that back or maybe to paying it forward? 
this is the source of Paul's passion. And I think he opens his heart to us here and shows us the driving force behind his own life. Part of the thinking that got Paul out of bed every morning is, brothers, we are debtors. And in chapter 13, Paul wants us to share with him this driving motivation to pay what is owed. In the language of verse 8, owe no one anything. Now, this whole idea might come as a bit of a strange concept to us. If we've grown up in the American evangelical church, we've probably heard over and over again that salvation is by grace, apart from the works of the law, which is true. We might have heard it taught that there is no such thing as Christian duty, no such thing as obligation, nothing a Christian ought to do, because the very language of ought denies the free gift of grace. But friends, read Romans. No one is more committed to the idea of salvation by grace than Paul. No letter spells it out more clearly than Romans. We get our Reformation theology from these very pages. But notice that all through Romans, Paul talks about his deep, lasting sense of duty, his own obligations. And we have to wonder, would Paul, the apostle, have lived the life he lived and taken the gospel as far as he took it without this driving sense of indebtedness. So if you're a person who's strongly driven by duty, then don't silence that voice in your Christianity. Don't write that off as being foreign to the gospel of grace. Instead, let that voice of duty and obligation speak to you. Let it motivate you as it motivated Paul. Don't, like, don't let people like me and Christian leaders abuse that sense of duty to get you to do busy work. Let God motivate you to live out your obligations before God, to pay off our debts. And that brings us to the second point this morning, which is that there is one unpayable debt. Love is the unpayable debt. So verse 8 continues, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The NIV Bible very helpfully translates this verse, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. So Paul's teaching on debts in general is to pay them off. Taxes, mortgages, student loans, credit card bills, revenue, honor, respect. Pay every debt as quickly as you can whenever the bills come due. But there is one and only one debt that we will never pay off, and that is love. The debt of love remains outstanding. And it's not because we're lazy about paying it. It's because however enthusiastically we pay it, day after day, we never pay it off. Love is the unpayable debt. So this past Wednesday, a few of us came here for Bible study on this passage. And we were looking carefully at what Paul says. And one of the teenagers asked us, why is love the only unpayable debt? Aren't respect and honor equally unpayable? After all, you don't respect your parents on Monday and then say on Tuesday, I don't need to do that again <laughs> because I did it yesterday. Um, so isn't respect just as unpayable as love? And that was a very good question. And uh, all of us who were here had to wrestle with it for a while. But in the end, three different people came up with three very good answers to that question. The first was that when it comes to respect and honor, there is an appropriate level. There's a right amount to pay, and it's finite. We can honor a person too little, but we can also honor them too much. But with love, there's no appropriate amount. It's impossible to love someone too much. The second very good answer was that respect and honor don't necessarily apply across the board to everyone or apply to everyone equally. 
but love does apply equally to everyone. So it has a universal scope. And the third very good answer was that the debts of respect and honor come due at specific times. There's a seasonality as to when it's the right time to show these things, but there's no seasonality to love. We always owe it all the time. So by being finite in their amount, in their scope, and in their proper season, the debts of respect and honor are payable debts, even though they're ongoing. But love remains unpayable, since it has infinite height, universal scope, and no off-season. So I think, in the end, that question at Bible study really helped all of us to understand love a bit better, to understand why Paul calls it the unpayable debt. So, in the unfolding plan of God, we have now come to the point where everything that God asks of people can be summed up in a single word. Love. So if you've ever sat down and worked your way through the five books of Moses, <laughs> that might seem at first glance like a very good trade. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy fill the first 177 pages of our church Bibles. They contain the whole law of Moses, the commandments of God to his people, teaching them how they can live to please him. And it's long, and it's heavy. And Jewish scholars combing through these texts have identified 613 separate laws. But Paul, who probably had that whole thing memorized, is happy to say in verse 9, just exactly what Jesus said, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. We've traded 613 commandments for one word. Is that a good trade? <laughs> well, it's certainly easier to remember. Um, but it's not a good trade if we're in for an easy life, is it? Because that single word love turns out to be bigger than 177 pages of Moses. It's a whole life calling, an everyday effort, and an unpayable debt. But as we think about how we might want to pay that debt off, I want to take us back to the law. The law actually really helps us in this idea of what love is and what love looks like. And it turns out that it's very practical. So as we looked at Leviticus chapter 19, love your neighbor as yourself, we can identify three stages or three movements to love. The first is that love does no harm. Love does no harm. As Paul says in Romans 13 verse 10, it does no wrong to a neighbor. So obviously love doesn't steal or kill, which is obvious harm. It doesn't bully or abuse. But neither does love do any of the less harmful kinds of harm. So Leviticus 19 says, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. So we see that love doesn't do any harm, even the harm that would go unnoticed, like with cursing the deaf, even the harm that would go unreciprocated, like putting a stumbling block in front of the blind. Love refuses to harm anyone in any way. I think this one has become quite difficult for us in our hyper-connected culture. Because when I buy a t-shirt from Target, who knows what harm I do to children in factories on the other side of the world? When I buy a bag of coffee, who knows what harm I do to exploited farmers or to polluted fields or to the environment? And it's so very hard to find out, isn't it? But love calls us to ask these kinds of questions and to spend our money as responsibly as we can because love does no harm. That's the first movement of love. 
The second goes a step further and says that love responds when it sees need. So, for example, Leviticus 19 says, The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. Because the worker needs those wages, and love will not turn a blind eye to his need. We are interdependent. We stand or fall together. We need each other. And God did not turn us away when we knocked on his door in the middle of the night. And as we follow his way of love, neither do we turn our neighbors away when they cry for help, if we can help. And this includes helping our friends and neighbors overcome their own sin. Because Leviticus 19 also says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. So we see that love is unafraid of conflict, and it goes to have the difficult conversation so that seeds of bitterness will not be allowed to grow up into hatred. So love does no wrong. Uh, Love responds to need however it can and helps. But the third thing we see in Leviticus is that love also takes the initiative. It asks, what do I have that other people might lack? So John the Baptist commanded, whoever has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And whoever has food should do the same. And Moses commanded in Leviticus 19, Do not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, you shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. This idea that the farmers would leave the excess for people to come and gather later, because they have and there are people poorer who need. Um, I've been doing... Breakfast Brigade with uh, James Barnett, who's here today. Um, we gather on Tuesday mornings. We do uh, a morning prayer together, and then we go out and uh, distribute breakfast to the labor pools in town. Uh, there's a great prayer that we say every Tuesday. I can't remember who it is, James. Can you remember? Um, it's the prayer that says, if we have more than we need, it is not our bread we come to share. It's their bread we come to return. It's a beautiful prayer. Love uh, not only does no harm, but it also responds to need whenever it can and takes the initiative to give what it has. Remember that Jesus took the initiative to give his life to save us when no one was asking him to. Paul took the initiative to share the gospel with Greeks and barbarians when no one was asking him to because he felt under this obligation of love. So love is very practical. It's always seen in action. All right, now that the third and final point from Romans 13 today is that the third motivating factor for Paul is that the time is short. We do not have endless time to pay these debts. So coming back to Romans 13, if you've lost it, come back to Romans 13 and verse 11, Paul says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. In other words, there is a window of opportunity to get our debts paid, and it is closing fast. When Paul says, you know the time, he means the kairos in Greek, the appointed season. So he means the fact that we are now in the last days. We're poised at the end of the story, and only the events of Revelation are still to come. So the final whistle could blow at any moment. And Paul himself wants to be found at that point with as many of his debts paid off as possible. And Paul also wants to start living into the future reality of daytime and not the past reality of nighttime. So he says in verse 12, The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness 
and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So think about this idea, this image of day and night. It remains true everywhere in the world that nighttime has a strange effect on humanity, doesn't it? None of us are our best selves after the sun goes down. None of us make our best decisions. To the day belong hard work, exercise, healthy meals, playing with the children, wholesome fellowship, and love. To the night belong loneliness, drunkenness, caving into addictions, crime, violence, and sexual experimentation. The best things that happen on earth happen in the day, and the worst things that happen on earth happen at night. Now imagine with Paul that actually none of us have ever known anything but night. Just one endless night from Adam until now. And all we've ever done or anyone we know has ever done is stumble around in the dark. And every book we've ever read about anyone who's ever lived was also just stumbling around in the dark. None of us has ever seen the sun. But when Jesus came, there was this glimmer of light in the sky. Not sunrise, not even a sliver of actual sun, but just that point when the sky starts to change color and promise that the sun is on its way. The dawn's early light. When it rises, everything will change. The whole era of night will end and it will be the beginning of endless day. And nighttime behavior will end with the rising of that sun. So imagine the time of day when the sky is just starting to change color. In reality, there are three kinds of people at that time of day, aren't there? There are the nighttime people who are making the most of the last moments of darkness to stumble home drunk or sneak out of the brothel. Then there are the daytime people, the super early risers who are out in their jogging clothes or wearing business suits and climbing into shiny cars. They're greeting the new day in preparation for the rising sun. And then the third kind is the sleeping people who are lingering in their beds. And Paul calls the disciples of Jesus to be daytime people, no longer part of the old world of nighttime, of orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality and quarreling and jealousy. Because those small comforts, those flimsy gratifications of the flesh that made the nighttime a little more bearable are worthless in the light of the coming day. And Paul calls us not to join the sleepers either, for he says to Christians, the time has come for you to wake from sleep. We're to rise and embrace the new day, to get dressed ready for the sunrise, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and start living now as we plan to live for eternity in worship and holiness before God, in the love of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. This chapter in Romans leaves us with endless territory to explore. It leaves us with endless bright and sunlit lands and an infinite ocean of love. And my hope, along with Paul, is that these truths would motivate us to make much of the time that is left to us. Not to simply count down our days to paradise, but to see how far we can run and how much debt we can pay down before we get there. Amen.